Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no tell. Welcome, Stacey Schiff, to In the Know. Thank you so much for being my first guest on this new series I'm doing, Women Leaders from History. I am honored and delighted. Thank you. Well, that's kind of you. Uh, we'll find out how the whole thing goes and see how much of an honor it, it turns out to be once I've collected my other stars. Well, I read three of your books in the last few months, and um, you were right in teasing me. I didn't read any of the ones about men. I read the three about women, about um, Vera Nabokov and Cleopatra, and I guess it's called The Witches, right? That's right. That's right. I won't, I yeah, won't give you a hard time about discriminating against men. <laughs> People do it enough that uh, hopefully uh, the reverse discriminating against men is, is okay. Refreshing. Only refreshing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and they were so good. I, I guess I picked up Cleopatra first, which I suppose you won a Pulitzer Prize for, or was that the Vera Nabokov book that you won the big the prize for? was, was for, the Nabokov, for the Nabokov book. In, in, yeah. published in 99, exactly. Yeah, and it's like kind of not fair because I think Cleopatra is even better. It should have won again. And maybe that one or the witches were on the shortlist or something, too. I mean, it doesn't happen often for people that they Actually, get. My, yeah, no, my first book was on the shortlist. One of the ones you can't read because it was written about a male subject. And it was shortlisted. It was one of the three finalists. But then That's so amazing. That's so amazing. Yeah. And of course, you know, yeah. all these titles. I don't, I'm, not a com- I'm not a frequent reader of biography and or even history, really. Um, but uh, turning to some of these topics lately, I got in my mind that there must be hugely interesting stories behind folks that are mentioned in like one sentence and with like a mere cameo on world affairs, people like Josephine Bonaparte or even, you know, Catherine the Great isn't given as much attention as perhaps some of the other czars who did a a worse job than her. And um, yeah, and Cleopatra often like an accessory to the events of the, uh, the Roman Empire as much as she's venerated for certain things, perhaps not even for the right things. And so I started with Cleopatra, and I, I have a whole sort of set of dimensions, because as I was working through your books and a couple of these other, I was reading a different kind of biography and history when it's written about women, and um, often by women, but maybe sometimes not always by women. And um, it was really striking to me. And so the choice to write about these folks, and I know you've written about all kinds of other legends. But I wonder, maybe that's an interesting place to start is just like choosing these very significant women. But I wonder if you feel that they were overlooked and some are are heroes and some are sort of quiet second figures. And then the witches, I mean, were often villainized, but perhaps they were victimized by their circumstance. I think I came to each of them for totally different reasons. The Nabokov book, for example, was really an attempt to get better at him. He had become something of a monument. Very few people had ventured near. He was terrifying and terrifying in terms of allowing himself to be written about. He scared off a great number of chroniclers who tended to sue his biographers. And what little existed made of him something of a canonical figure, but not really a human being. And all of the, the few books that did exist made very clear that you couldn't really understand him if you didn't understand her. But you can almost hear the sound of the biographer getting up out of his chair and leaving the room and not wanting to finish that paragraph, sort of being scared off by Mrs. Nabokov. And it literally was, you know, his story will not be known until you can understand Vera. And then there would be kind of a blank. And to me, that was like a waving red flag to a, you know, and a bullfighting ring. 
I just I thought, well, what's that about? Every one of his books is dedicated to Vera. And she's clearly collaborative in every possible way. I knew very little about her going in. I knew that she was Jewish, which she was not. That was unusual for the time. I knew that she accompanied him to class at Cornell for every single lecture, famously. And I knew that she carried a gun in her handbag. And I think I knew maybe four or five other things other than that before I wrote to Minabokov's son, Dmitri, to say, you know, might I attempt a biography of your mother? And if you begin to look at the life, there, she essentially creates a monument, which is Nabokov, because her voice, after many years, becomes his voice. You know, we have many instances in history or in literature of men silencing women, and here was a woman speaking for her husband. So for any number of reasons, I became really fixated on her. She's in the literature, throughout the literature. She's collaborative in terms of several of the titles. She saves Lolita from the flames. She researches parts of Lolita. In every possible way, she's at the forefront there. Right? Someone, one of their editors said of them, they were the, it was the closest marriage she was ever present at. And I think at that point, I was thinking, too, about marriage. I mean, just there were all sorts of things that led me to that book, as did a love of Nabokov's literature. So Vera saves Lolita from the flames. I mean, to me, that was a linchpin moment of the story. Well, you know, that's a funny thing, because it was in the lore that Mrs. Nabokov fishes the pages of Lolita out of the fire. I wanted to make sure it wasn't just lore, and so it took me ages to find, finally, in a French archive, an account from him of her doing that, and then ultimately to find a Cornell student who had actually been one of the students who helped her learn how to drive, who appears in the backyard on a day when she's fishing the pages out of a trash can in the yard. So that was, you know, that's as good as it gets as a biographer. <laughs> yeah, and buttoning down a rumor, I guess. But I mean, the legend was huge, but I guess you were drawn. Let's see, it's sort of a multidimensional thing. I mean, writers, of course, should be scared of Nabokov because he was so great. And biographers are writers. And so if you attempt to undertake, you're almost embarrassed to put your pen and write his name, I suppose. And I guess sneaking up on it was your strategy here, but also a personal dimension that was not revealed in his identity. And the fact that there is another person. Yeah, I mean, you know, in a lot of women's stories, a lot of women's history comes down to this, that there's a figure in the room who is somehow, you know, eliminated from the picture, but is enormously crucial to producing that picture. So, for example, you may know that famous photograph of Nabokov kind of lounging in a car out west while he's writing. He seems to be writing, you know, his magisterial prose. He famously wrote pages in the backseat of the car. But we also know that Nabokov didn't know how to drive. So by definition, someone else had to be in that picture because someone else has driven him to that address, to that remote location from which he was writing. And, you know, Vera just gets scrubbed out of that picture. But in fact, of course, it was she who was usually the family chauffeur. So she's there in the room. She's typing every manuscript. They're often discussing things as she's typing. But that part of the picture, from our perspective anyway, had been eliminated. So it was an attempt to somehow restore, to write the picture and to pry apart this couple because I did feel you couldn't really understand. I felt those other biographers had been correct, that you really couldn't see him in the round unless you could see this person to whom he was so closely affixed. I would draw the logic as a sine qua non, like it couldn't have happened. You know, the book would have burned without her. But you don't push harder than that and turn her to the hand in glove of some of his accomplishments, or do you feel... Yes, yeah, so this is the problem of writing nonfiction. You can only go as far as the evidence will take you. And the what-ifs, obviously, don't appear on the page. And 
Can we push any further than that? No, we really can't in good conscience. You have all kinds of little hints and clues along the way of how she felt about that manuscript. Lolita was not a book on which a, at that point, relatively impoverished couple should have been counting during those years. These are the Eisenhower years. It wasn't exactly saleable manuscript. There didn't, wouldn't have seemed a saleable manuscript in the early 50s when, when Nabokov was working on it. How did Vera really feel about it? We know she's a little nervous, finally, when it is published. She's a little nervous he might lose his job, and the two of them at that point are subsisting on his Cornell salary. It's the first time they've had financial security since, um, since really they had left Germany, and that was rather perilous existence. So there are clearly mixed feelings about Lolita. We can talk about that. And we can talk about how much she stands for the, stands up for the book upon publication. But, you know, again, I'm, one has to stay within the realm of where the evidence, where the, where the material takes you. Yeah. How do you discipline yourself? Because I, can, reading, I sort of see her doing more between the scenes that you have. And, like, how can it be that this sort of flaky, dreamy guy was able to pull it all off? How did he really remember what he had read or what he had said without her there? I mean, the level of collaboration is obviously massive, but it's just his name on the text and the glory is, is all his. It does yeah, seem wrong. Cornell, if if, if, yeah, if he had been, let's say, like a contemporary producer who had like a writing partner, they'd both get the credit. And um, no one's trying to revise that now. For those one of, the, one of the interesting things for me when I was working on it, or one of the discouraging things, I should say, is that I was very aware of the fact that this was not a terribly unusual life for you know, a woman in the 1950s, or certainly not in the 40s and 50s, and that there are any number of wives who did this much for their husbands. It's just that their husbands weren't necessarily the geniuses that, was Nabo- that, that Nabokov was. There was a sense that this was a fairly common story, and that and this is before I'd written the book, that maybe it didn't need to be told, that it was somehow such a common story that it was just to be taken for granted. And remember, this is years before women's history and, you know, women who were behind the scenes were really routinely recognized. But there was a fear on my part that this was somehow maybe an ill, not an illegitimate story, but an insignificant story for that very reason, because, you know, this is how marriage worked in those days. I see. So you might go hunting with too big a prize and then take arrows from critics who said you had overstated her role perhaps with um, anxiety. Not necessarily overstated, but just, um, you know, well, what about, what about Mrs. Tolstoy, who arguably copied out more pages for her husband? You know, there were, there uh, right. in the League of Women Writers. Right. right, exactly, exactly. So it was, more, it was more that fear that, you know, if you're going to open this Pandora's box, there are any number of women you could be writing about kind of thing. And in the League of Russian Women's, Russian Writers' Wives, there was a serious competition here. Because oh, obviously among, yeah. among Russian writers, literature, among Russians, literature is held, to such, held in such glory. I see. And it's probably the case that the 19th century authors had wives that were keeping them sober. And <laughs> no one ever talks about Mrs. Balzac. Was there a Mrs. Balzac? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, one bit of territory that I think you touch quite lightly, and maybe it's just the facts, it's just that's what the facts say, but something I want to explore with you on, uh, on Cleopatra, an, an area you touch quite gently is. Um, Nabokov's extracurricular, not quite affairs with other women. But it does come up. I mean, I can't imagine reading just like a straight biography on Mr. Nabokov that would spend any pages at all on him, like kissing Cornell co-eds. But here here it does appear. Yeah, it's a hard contrast to draw because the two male biographers who had preceded me were, I think I'm right about this, writing about those years of his life while he was still alive. 
So they had mm-hmm. to be a little more careful than I had to be in a way. Both or in the book. Or you sue them or yell at them or shout them down. Or... Well, yeah, yeah. Both in the book. Well, and also, you know, it's an interesting thing with biographical evidence. People are more willing to talk when the subject is no longer around. I mean, there's a sweet spot in terms of, you know, when you can actually get people to be more vocal. It's a wonderful line of Benjamin Franklin's, which, of course, you won't know because you didn't read that book, in which he says, um, <laughs> three can keep a secret if two of them are dead. You know, there is this kind of opening up that you hear from interview subjects when you when they, there's no worry obviously about repercussions there was a woman in paris who had all of the documents for nabokov's sort of flaming 1938 love affair when he's in paris and vera's in germany and she had diaries of the mistress and she had love letters that had gone between them and was an invaluable source obviously for that relationship that was a source that was not available to everybody you know, I just hit it at exactly the right moment, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's that crucial was because it's crucial intense to a later real book. relationship. It's yeah, super, super real. And his wife knew, and it was like colossal. I think I say this in the book. The depressing part about that relationship is seeing Nabokov writing to the girlfriend in precisely the same terms that he'd written to Vera previous decade. And you kind of think, well, you know, even a master like Nabokov can't seem to coax two full vocabularies out of, you know, love and lust right? So it's a very similar tone in the letters. And then there are just these extraordinary little touches, like the two of them playing hangman together in Cyrillic in, in her diary. You know, it's just, it's a very intimate look at the relationship. And she's distraught when he breaks off with her. And then she ends up writing a short story, which I don't think has ever been, has been seen recently anyway. I think it was published at the time in which she writes about the affair. So that was another, it's very close to the truth. And it was another great source on what had actually happened that year. And uh, the co-eds at Cornell? The co-eds at Cornell, um, he seems to have been relatively tame at Cornell. I don't think I had, I don't heard from anyone who, who mentioned anything about him being flirtatious at Cornell, although someone did suggest that was why Vera accompanied him to class every day. Prior to Cornell, he had taught at Wellesley. And at uh, Wellesley, there were quite a few stories about, about Nabokov and his creeping comments, creeping with an I-N-G, not creepy. And in one case, a young woman whom he did court and who was very willing to talk about it. It's funny when people who meet writer, fiction writers are often very keen to cast themselves as characters in the later work of those writers. And to a woman, I think every woman I spoke to whom he had taught at, who had been at Wellesley at the, in those years, suggested that she was Lolita. So there was yeah, a lot of, there was a lot of that, claiming. Yeah. yeah. But this woman, whom I do write about, Catherine Reese Peebles, clearly did have some kind of relationship with him, how far it went. It didn't go terribly far. Had Vera known of it, it certainly would have been enough to make her uneasy. And I guess even if she did, in the time and the context, as you characterize her as a fitting into her role, perhaps she would have let it go. I know, it's a hard one. Can't help you on that one, right? Hmm. I mean, that's where interesting because she would deny it, but she would deny Vera was a champion of denials. So Mm. even years later, when confronted with this other affair, she denied it, not knowing that there was evidence of it. This Mm. is a woman who could deny that she was worried that her only child, her son, was racing cars. No, it didn't worry her at all. So it's very hard sometimes with her to separate what she says on the page or what she says to a stranger with what she's actually feeling, which, of course, is one of the challenges in writing the book. To champion it, erasing herself from the story to the point where there was a set of page proofs of an earlier biography which she had corrected. In other words, she'd written in the margins where she thought the author was wrong. And then she'd gone back having done that, and she'd erased all of her comments. 
So I was left holding these pages, you know, these onion skin pages, which have been typed, holding them up to the light, trying to read the erased marginalia to see what she had actually. It was unfortunately, most of it was still somehow, you know, in some palimpsestic form legible. But that was very typical of Vera to have, on the one hand, corrected the assignment and on the other hand, erased the correction. Amazing. Yeah. And actually, it makes her such a difficult subject because there's not a page in the book about her that doesn't also talk about her husband. And they were together so long that I guess their lives are so deeply intertwined. But it is interesting to write a book about a woman and have it be more or less all about her husband. And in fact, I mean, that is kind of the motivation as you approach Nabokov and you're like, okay, let me approach him through Vera. And I mean, maybe this is not fair or maybe it's not accurate. I don't know how you feel about it. How intertwined I, I felt that, I felt that, that the focus always had to be on her. But of course, we wouldn't be reading about her if it weren't for him. So she is valuable to us largely in terms of his literature, where she appears in the literature, how she shapes the literature, how she makes the literature possible. But I also felt, for example, that, and this is, it's hard sometimes to silence the more articulate subject. I mean, you, you may have noticed that Cicero sometimes overtakes Cleopatra because he's just so eloquent. But yeah, I, I he put a lot of his letters right? in it. I know, yeah. he's just, un, he's, you know, believably quotable, and Nabokov as well, obviously. But I felt there had to be things to sort of even the field, for example, and no one I'm sure has ever noticed this, there are a couple of pages, there's as much as I could find out about Vera's childhood. And in fact, as a side thing, that is a relatively easy thing to document, because as her family was Jewish, and as Jews had to document every movement that they attempted in those years, geographically, professionally, in every sense, there was an enormous amount of paper showing where her family had been and what they'd been doing and which businesses they'd been involved in. But I spent as much time as I could on her childhood, but Nabokov's childhood is actually in a footnote. And I felt in some way that that was revenge on speak memory. You know, he'd had his say <laughs> about his pampered and privileged childhood. Let's just stick that. It's not important to this story. So let's just put that in a footnote. You mentioned the Cleopatra book, and I want to consider her so this one's a re it, it reverses some of the, the questions and approach that I was interrogating with you. Cleopatra the star, often peripheral, I suppose. I mean, you know, even Anthony and Cleopatra is a Shakespeare play. But basically, like, she exists as like, um, like an ultra-reductive, you know, beautiful, mysterious, sneaky Halloween costume. lady. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 She's like a sexy nurse, basically. She's left to us in Halloween land. If you look at the literature, you notice something really interesting, which is that in her day, she's never described as a beauty. And in fact, Plutarch is very clear about the fact that she's distinctly not a beauty or that her beauty is in her character and in her charisma and in her ability to seduce, by which he means intellectually as much as anything else. But that as the years go by, her story, we can talk about this, gets left to essentially her enemies, she gets better and better looking <laughs> for the year. So that is yeah, she's just sort of merging with the stereotype of a powerful woman. Like women can only be powerful because they're beautiful. And therefore, if she had pulled off so much, she must have been quite beautiful, therefore seductive, not courageous and inventive. I think that's true. I think it's, there's something a little more nuanced there as well, which is that if you lose to a woman because she was smart, then you somehow lost fairly. So that you don't want to admit that. But if you lose to a woman because she somehow just, she somehow exercises some kind of magic or some kind of enchantment on you through her feminine wiles or through her you know, sexual allure, then there's no contest. Then you didn't really lose because you didn't stand a chance. So that it became easier in a way to turn her into this wanton seductress than to recognize her as a 
cool and calculating strategist. And so that part, I mean, A, that, and B, I think, you know, we're always, you know, we've turned all kinds of figures into sexual beings. I mean, Jezebel, we've turned all kinds of women in history who do nothing more than, you know, put on makeup or prevail over men into sexual creatures. So I think there's a certain amount of that, but I think there was a need among the Romans to whom her story is left to lend her an air of magic because it somehow accounts for the fact that she's able to defeat men the way she is or or exercise power over men the way she does. Right. I mean, she doesn't get the final victory, but it's crazy that the three greatest figures of the empire or the early empire all come and pay service on her shores. And really the reckoning of who would be master happens in how they deal with her. I think the only thing they ever really, the only thing the Roman chroniclers ever unilaterally give her credit for is for committing suicide. I think the Romans were always very impressed by people who nobly take their own lives, you know, women who hang themselves by their hair or swallow burned coals. That kind of thing really impressed the Romans. And so oh I think that, I know. It's terrifying so I think and pretty badass. I know, I know. So I think there's a sort of, you know, elemental admiration for the fact that she does herself in, that that would have been the noble Roman way to go. You realize that you're cornered as she is at the end of her life. She and Mark Antony have lost, a, you know, have lost terribly to Octavian. And she does the only Roman thing there is to do at this point, which is to do away with herself. And I think no matter how much they despised her and how much they were contemptuous of her, that won her points. You set it up, but I don't know if you completely explicitly land it. I mean, it, it doesn't seem that you with your journalistic bent of reporting the facts as you can confirm them. I don't know that you confirm that she found herself a snake to bite her in exactly the right way, but you do sort of set her up as messing around with poisons and snakes and being a bit of an expert, a little hobbyist scientist kind of on the the nature and the herbs Um, of of Egypt around the time, right? I pretty much unconfirmed the snake, um, or at least Mm. I dearly hope I did. I mean, for so many reasons, but among them, the fact that a woman who was as precise and meticulous and calculating as Cleopatra would not have left her fate to a wild creature who couldn't be relied upon necessarily to bite at exactly the right moment. And then there's the issue of how did she ever smuggle that large a snake? And the implication, and no ancient source actually mentions the snake, I should add. We know that a basket of figs is left, is, is indeed goes into the mausoleum on the last day of her life. No one ever says, we know there was a snake. Plutarch isn't completely certain of what happens at that moment. But a snake wouldn't have fit in that basket. And moreover, both she and her her maidservants die of snake bite, and one snake could not have bitten all three of them. So there are any number mm. of reasons why the snake wouldn't really serve her purposes. It's also just a very convenient... A snake was the symbol of Egypt. And as we know, snakes and women get tangled up in all kinds of evil ways. So there are any reasons why the snake is probably a late arrival it looks good in a costume. in a Halloween costume. It looks you. great in a painting too, right? As does does the bared breast, right? I mean, not, which also was probably not true. But yes, an expert in poisons, as would any Hellenistic monarch have been, that would have been, you know, you took that course in high school, kind of thing. There would have been a a little packet inside a fig or something. There, yeah, exactly. Or she would have known. She certainly would have known what you would have wanted to have had inside your fig, exactly. And we have evidence of her experimenting on prisoner. I mean, we know that she experimented with poisons. So there is, and again, this is extrapolating a little bit, but we know at least that that is a realm in which she had some kind of expertise. She spoke six languages, seven, including languages that prior rulers didn't bother to learn. She speaks nine languages, which is more than any of the Roman men with whom she consorts 
would have spoken. And the stunning one there, we know some of them were. We know that she spoke Hebrew. We know she spoke what's called troglodyte, which was an ancient language of Ethiopia. Um, we don't know how good her Latin was. She clearly conversed with some of these men in Latin. Greek would have been the first and the most important language. It was the, the language of you know diplomacy and science and the arts of the day and of the theater. But she also spoke Egyptian. She was the first member of her dynasty. That's the really stunning one. It was a difficult language. To speak language the vernacular. Yeah, to speak the language of the seven million people over whom she rules, which surely had something to do with how good the relations were with her subjects. And in terms of raising an army, speaking many of the other languages, the Thracians, the the people she was hiring for her army, speaking the tongues of those nations certainly would have helped as well. And then Plutarch... Uh, military leader, that. strategist, diplomat. She's like a, a general and a stateswoman, but remembered for her makeup, I guess. <laughs> Someone was just telling me last week about Cleopatra's makeup. There's a great moment when she and Mark Antony are in this military camp in the last months that they're together. She should have gone home. It was a distraction and a it was a very bad idea to have her in this camp. It's bad for morale, and she's really not helping. But she thinks she is. And she essentially is pleading with Antony, saying, you know, look, I've run a country. I've run a, I've, I've run a fleet. I've run an army. I know what I'm doing. And, you know, she does have a point. She comes to this with more experience in raising an army and being in charge of a fleet than does he. But there's a Well, because real... he had very little sea experience. I mean, I thought he was a pretty decent exactly. general. Exactly. No, but in terms, of, in terms of the ship. And, of course, that's... Mm. The great contest between the two of them at that point is, should we fight by land or should we fight by sea? And she's insisting, probably wrongly, on battling by sea. She uh, climbs over her rivals, I guess family members, to end up the leader of her country. Not often given credit for that, but rather given criticism. You know, family relations were very different among sovereigns in the ancient world. And, you know, on the one hand, you can look at it you know, sort of baldly from the modern perspective and, and say, you know, what in the world's going on in a family where there, there are four siblings, four other siblings. There's an elder sister who at one point their father, Cleopatra and, and her father is in Rome and the sister usurps the throne. So when Ptolemy returns to Alexandria, he does away with his daughter. And that leaves Cleopatra with three surviving siblings. After she comes to the throne, she's immediately, or as she comes to the throne, she's immediately thrown into a civil war against her brother, who dies in that civil war. That's the war in which Caesar will come to her assistance, and that she and Caesar will fight together. That leaves two surviving siblings, one of whom is a brother, to whom she is briefly entitled married, and that brother will be poisoned. And that leaves one surviving sister, and as a favor to her, Mark Antony will see to it that that sister is murdered. So you could say, oh, my God, you know, what a, what a bloodbath of a family. She knocks off every sibling. On the other hand, as is clear from the ancient chroniclers, that was standard operating procedure. You know, Herod murders his own children. I mean, if you, if you hold her up to the other rulers of the day, she's no more mercenary than are they. And it was really a matter of, you know, you or me, one of us is going to go here. So it would have made for a really interesting breakfast table, I'm sure. What's the deal with the, the sibling marriage? I guess it's a way of keeping divine privilege of, of ruling pretty tight and not involving foreigners or commoners. They were just exactly. Exactly. married but had other consorts. I mean, is that how it worked Mar practically? I can't speak to the other consorts, but married to members of their own families, often intergenerationally. And Although in Cleopatra's case, there's no issue from those marriages. Her children are with Mark Antony and Caesar only. But interestingly, there are no deformities among the children. 
at least no recorded deformities, I should say, among the children of the Ptolemaic rulers. This is, she's the 10th generation of these rulers who descend from one of the generals of Alexander the Great. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, now we know right. genealogy and math, and it seems implausible. Unless we just don't have a record. In other words, unless those children are somehow eliminated in the history. And that's perfectly possible. Um, yeah, but you well. do, you know, siblings sending armies out against each other and the, the mothers hacking off, you know, limbs of their sons. You have this extraordinarily um, bloody, barbaric history. But you also have intermarriages among these same people. I don't know that you have a word verbatim from Cleopatra in your book, do you? There is only one existing word, which is arguably hers. And again, it's not entirely proved. And that rather an interesting word essentially translates to let it be done. It's an edict in which she or a scribe who worked for her simply signed off on this order. And that's the only word that we might be able to consider as having come from her pen. So the only quotes we have from her are in the ancient sources. And the closest that we come to real quoted materials, real quoted conversations is in Plutarch. And again, that's, and this was part of the beauty of writing about her, as part of the interest for me in writing about her, is remembering who those sources are and when they live. Plutarch is born 76 years after she dies. So he's getting some of this material from his grandfather. But you're not, you're talking about relatively few people who are writing contemporaneously. There's plenty of words from uh, Caesar and Octavian and the rest of them. It is strange for the supreme ruler of Egypt not to have left anything written from the place they invented papyrus. Yeah, well, that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is the climate. The papyrus hasn't aged well, obviously. Remember that her childhood home is 20 feet underwater at this point. So the, coast, the whole coastline of Alexandria has changed. Wherever her, we, we have no trace of, the, of Cleopatra's palace. So the geography is completely gone. The Nile's actually in a different place than it was at the time. But the climate hasn't been good to the, to the record, to the written record. And then there's the question of how much the Romans destroyed, which we don't yeah, know. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's what, how I feel. I, right. I mean, surely in all recorded history of that era and earlier, it wasn't easy to preserve these documents. But her case is uniquely undermined by many other interests. Perhaps partly because she was a woman, as you point out, if you lose to a woman because she's smarter than you, uh, it's humiliating. But if, if she's magic or some incantation, perhaps it's allowed. I mean, another theme, though, that we were talking about on seduction, I mean, it is pretty impressive. I mean, she seduces two of the greatest leaders of the Roman Empire early on, and she makes a go at Octavian, too, right? Certainly at the end of her life, yes, while pleading for her life. If you believe one of the two accounts, yes, she's essentially trying to barter herself away. That account is a little kind of over the top in purple, but it's it's not impossible. I mean, the other interesting thing, I mean, how did she manage to have children with, all, with both of those men? So at just the right moment, extremely good at timing the pregnancies. Anyway, what were you, what were you about to say? <laughs> no, I mean, it's unbelievable. I, I would like to interrogate a little bit with you the story of the carpet. Can we revisit the carpet, one of the most famous feats of uh, anyone ever? Yeah, so it isn't, you know, you have to sort of just try to forget Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor and the carpet. You know, I felt I had to start the book there because that scene is so seared in our minds and it's so completely fictitious. And remember that Cleopatra at that moment is in the middle of a civil war with her brother. She is very much losing the civil war with her brother. He's in possession of Alexandria. She's been exiled to this encampment in the eastern Sinai, Pelusium. And she's out there with a, an army of mercenaries and realizes that Caesar has landed in Alexandria and has summoned her. But this leaves her with 
the conundrum of how to get back into the Palace of Alexandria behind the enemy lines, behind her brother's enemy lines, which are encircling the city. And this required a great deal of investigation because I didn't know offhand how in the ancient world you could travel east to west from Pelusium, which is off in the desert, to Alexandria, much less how you do it disguised in any way. And Plutarch is the one who has the answer for how she did it surreptitiously, which is that she has one of her loyal retainers fold her into not a carpet, but a sort of big leather sack, the kind of sack that you would have carried an enormous amount of money in or something. And he, th- and he I mean, this tactic and- continues to this day. I believe a, a big CEO escaped from Japan and more or less the same. It's not dissimilar, um, you know, kind of surreptitious, right? Move. No airplanes involved in this one. She, um, the theory is that, and it, it, it came to me from the person who was the greatest expert on travel in the, in the ancient world was that she would have had essentially to travel south and then north again on the Nile to get to Alexandria. And that she's rowed by Apollodorus, by this wonderful retainer, sort of right under the palace walls. So sort of right where nobody would have noticed her. And that he slips her into the sack and then into the halls of the palace. How she presents herself, how, how she makes her exit from that, you know, how she makes that magical leap out of the sack and before Caesar, we obviously don't know. The way it's come down to us is, you know, she was majestically quaffed. I think it would be very difficult to be majestically quaffed if you just jumped out of a bag. But it's the only account we have. And we do know that she later will suggest to another sovereign, when she goes to visit Herod, to another woman trying to escape, she'll suggest that she secret herself, this goes a little more to modern history, that she secret herself out in a coffin, basically. We know she's given to these kinds of dramatic gestures, and we know she's given to these kinds of theatrical escapes. But those are the only clues we have as to how actually it happens. And Caesar tells us almost nothing about Cleopatra for good reasons. It was impolitic for him to discuss his relationship with, for a married Roman to discuss his relationship with an Egyptian sovereign. And the only line of his book on the, on the Civil War that he, in which he mentions her, he essentially lauds her for being a good and obedient woman. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, There are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. Few of the biographies of men in these periods, and as we mentioned about, you wouldn't treat their personal lives, their romantic lives and social dealings very much, but it turns out to be one of the big sources of her tactics and her accomplishments. It ends up being the imprint that she's mostly remembered by, but actually she used it to great advantage. And I guess with a handful of tools, 
more credit to her. I think that that's part of the reason that she continues to astonish. I mean, first of all, and the thing that gets forgotten in all of this is she is the richest woman in the Mediterranean, richest person in the Mediterranean world, hands down. And that's one of the reasons why the Romans are so, on the one hand, envious of her, on the other hand, contemptuous of her. And the extent of her power, the extent of her territory is extraordinary. I mean, essentially, at, at the height of her power, she rules from the edge of Libya all the way up the Mediterranean coast, except for a tiny fraction that Herod controls, all the way to, to the edge of, Tur- of modern-day Turkey. So it's an extraordinary empire. And how you manage to do that without this sort of combustible combination of, you know, sex appeal and brains, I, I think, astonished the ancients. I mean, it's it's she's so out of keeping with any of the rulers they have dealt with, although there have been any number of Eastern sovereigns, but she's the only woman who crosses the Roman radar, so to speak. And that's another thing. There's such a disconnect between how women are seen in her world and the way, because women in Egypt have these, this extraordinary set of rights and how women are seen in the Roman world, where they really are just appendages. And in the case of the highborn Romans, they are really sort of political pawns to be traded for political advantage. I mean, both All of the men with whom she's involved are married multiple times for political reasons. And things happen very differently in Egypt, where the goddess Isis probably has something to do with how strong women are and how many rights they are attributed to them, but where there's a very different view of the sexes. Europe continues for some time with that framework that was true in Rome. We started in our discussion on Cleopatra with the word magic, and I thought it might be nice to investigate a little bit the witches. Now, the witches isn't as much of a a sort of hero-driven narrative. It seems like you've shown up like a detective at the scene of a a huge mistake, like (laughs) someone might find, you know, a war that had broken out or a, a contagion that had spread, and you're trying to figure out what on earth happened in this place in this time where gravity was turned upside down, but women were at the center of the whole thing. Narratively, the way I wanted to construct the book was not to start, was to not make it a thesis-driven book. I wanted to be able to to take the reader through narratively and then only at the end to reveal the causes so that it it doesn't begin with here's why this happened, but that you build your way toward all of the things for which I have laid the hints in every chapter, but that the the way that history has veered off course and the way this, that justice has miscarried isn't abundantly clear until the end. But you needed to sort of be carried away in the terror of the story for a while first before you get to those kinds of answers. And the answer involves women or girls? It's an event for which there are any number of causes that come together in this, you know, rather tragic way. The answer involves a lot of insecurities, a lot of anxiety, a lot of economic insecurity on the colony of Massachusetts at that point. It involves a political insecurity. The new governor is on his way with a new government. And there are a lot of reasons why people feel on the one hand concerned that they might be taken to task for previous misdeeds and why they need to ingratiate themselves with a new order. I mean, one of the real mysteries that year isn't just why the witchcraft accusations are so rampant, but why the prosecution is so intense. There have been witchcraft accusations essentially since the founding of New England, but why that year does the prosecution, there's a 100% prosecu- 100% conviction rate. Why are the judges so intent on prosecuting this? And for that, there are governmental reasons. It's a very, very cold winter. It's a particularly cold winter in a particularly taxed community, the little, the little village of Salem, in a household which had strains of its own. So there was a reason why the girls might have been somehow manifesting symptoms of some kind of anxiety or, or, or despair. And there were a lot of pent-up resentments and envies and 
anxieties among the villagers so that, you know, it's not all that really, it's not all that hard to think of a reason to accuse your neighbor of something. Well, you, um, again, as on all topics, are very fair-minded, and part of my interest in talking with you was to get under the covers on the role of women in particular. 1692, there was a lot going on, perhaps also true in 1917 or in any other moment of great panic or contagion or mania, you know, the Dutch tulip bubble or the French run on similar. But the dynamics, however they set themselves up, victimized, it seems, a bunch of young women and the prosecutors and the judges were all men. Yeah, and and the other thing that's interesting when you're talking about what do we have on the record for someone like Cleopatra, we don't have the court papers for the Salem Witch Trials, which is an eerie other story. We don't know where they went. But what we do have are about a thousand pages of depositions and and various court various arrest warrants and, and jailers accountings and things. The depositions come to us, they're women's voices, but they're transcribed by men. And so the men are the court reporters. And very often in writing down this testimony they take liberties with it. And they say, you know, the defendant didn't seem very respectful of the judges, of the justices at this juncture. And here's what she meant to say. They're writing in a great hurry and they're trying to get a lot down on paper. So they sometimes summarize things and they sometimes editorialize. But what it means to us is that we have, what it means is that we have these women's accounts slightly mutilated by the men who recorded them. So again, you know, we're somewhat at a disadvantage in hearing the actual women. And some of these women show up only exclusively in the testimony of the Salem witch trials. We know almost nothing else about them. Some of them we know a great deal about. But in a few cases, like the African slave who really sets the thing going, sets the, th- sets the panic off, we know about her really only what comes up in the papers of the Salem witch testimony. There's an element of unreality. I mean, it, I mean the core of it actually is just the acceptance of unreality and all natural law being reversed. And I suppose you set the context quite well in explaining that, well, people believe in all sorts of nonsense at that time. And, you know, you'd show up with a dolphin liver or something to try to treat someone's <laughs> illness. There was no science, no medicine. There wasn't anything. So perhaps it wasn't so strange. Perhaps it was just a, a slightly more extreme collective version of the uh, the magic they all believed in. I hesitate even to say that because I feel as if I don't know what this is, Mal, maybe you will. I feel as if there's probably something equally delusional that we all believe in today. That in 50 years, people will look back and think, how could they have believed that? You know, because the, for these people, there's a fundamental, you know, religious doctrine here. They, they believe in witchcraft because the Bible reminds us that witchcraft, the Bible tells us that witchcraft exists and that witches work in collusion with the devil. And in order to be pious, you obviously subscribe to these ideas. So they feel as if they are, to some extent, following their, they're on the right way by accusing someone of witchcraft, you are to some extent purifying the community, you're doing the right thing morally for your community. And then as the summer, as the panic continues, and as the summer goes along, these stories get more and more delusional. The original accusations, which are kind of, you know, one here and one there, and they don't really tally one with the next, they're very sort of incongruous. Suddenly you get this narrative that's really common and fused together and you start hearing about the satanic sabbath at which these precise events occurred to which everyone flew on various kinds of contrivances and you get people swearing to this i mean you include including a woman who not only says she's flown to it but that she hurt her leg because the stick she was flying on crashed and her leg still hurts so clearly people have convinced themselves that this really happened 
Well, this has not changed. We still live very much in the age of extraordinary popular delusion we're talking today. Exactly. On the day that greatest deliberative body in the world has acquitted the American president on... I rest my case. Exactly. ...commentary. So delusion will certainly persist for quite some time. In this one, I don't think in today's news, I don't think anyone's blaming any women. Do you think that the Salem situation was different or exacerbated or particularly weighted against the young women who were the majority of the of the sort of reporters of, of witchery. I mean, a bunch of young women started saying they were witches or saw witches and turning each other in. And a few other folks were involved, but it's not the, the warlock trials. I mean, it's amazing how much it concentrates right on, on these young women. It, it is quite striking. You have a group of young women, though, to whom the authorities are listening very intently. And that's and that was one of the things that so intrigued me initially about the story is that when you think about women's voices in history, there are relatively few times when a woman, much less an adolescent, is calling the shots. I mean, there's Joan of Arc, another one. I'm not sure I can think of another case, but where these girls are basically saying this person is a witch, this person exercised her magic, this person did that, and the authorities are immediately riding out with arrest warrants for those people. And so they're and at a certain point, these girls almost visionaries for the for the communities in which they live and they're they're carted about from from one household to another to be able to point a finger at the culprits of doing working what evil on the communities so they have this full attention of the villages in which they live and that's an extraordinary sort of you know departure from history but yes the bulk of their vic- the bulk of the victims are women in the end there are 14 women who who hang and only, and only i guess you could say five men when you look at who offers the most extraordinary witchcraft testimony, I mean, the loopiest sounding witchcraft testimony, it tends to be the teenage boys who testify. They seem to be more imaginative. I think someone should write a doctoral thesis on this. It's just so odd to me that it's the men who come up with the better, you know, the, with the more outlandish stories, really. But you have these girls to whom the entire community is listening. And from other accounts, not the Salem girls, but from other similar accounts of girls who are suffering similar sets of symptoms, we know that they enjoyed that. We know that there's a certain performative aspect to this. The entire community is listening. Their families are sitting around their bedsides. The young men in the community are coming to visit them. They don't have to do their chores. On that last bit, I mean, it was a provocative hint that you did put in the book that it was a time, an opportunity for a young woman who chose to participate to have time alone in her room with men a man who came to listen to her story or to whatever. Yeah, there's one account of a suffering of a girl suffering kind of convulsive witchcraft like symptoms. I don't I say witchcraft like not by modern standards but by seventeenth century standards. She's not one of the Salem accusers and but it is an account of the time and we're told that she dismisses all the older men in the room but she tells the one young man to stay. <laughs> so that did seem mm. somewhat indicative of something. Um and we do hear from them about how much they're enjoying the attention. A couple of them who are said to be suffering from whatever this malady is actually gain weight because they're obviously in their rooms all the time. They're not really out having to, you know, milk the cow and, you know, fetch dinner. So there's really a sense of being pampered in exchange for coughing up this information. Now, that's assuming right. that some of these girls were counterfeiting. Some of them are clearly suffering from something. Only the original, the two originally afflicted girls and probably several others do 
exhibit symptoms, which we would today call conversion disorder, or which would used to be called hysteria. It's clearly something is seriously amiss. But it would seem as if some of the other girls who are pointing fingers are... Perhaps- well, and they were suffering under the yoke of the society at the time, I suppose. And any exit door you could take, why not take it? I mean, it's not just a sort of for-profit enterprise for them, but uh, perhaps <laughs> from an unfair system. To collect a few themes from across this survey we've done, it seems very often that these women protagonists are magical, irrational, sexual, and that's it. Oh, and invisible. I would definitely vote on the invisible. They don't get to write their own history. One of them erased all her words. The others were rewritten by others. Cleopatra has, I guess, one word or in English three that are left for her. Um, (laughs) Sexuality is a dimension certainly for Cleopatra that's very powerful and it seems latent in the witches. For Vera, it's not there. Magic is there for Cleopatra and the witches, for sure. I mean, it's the central theme. And on irrational, certainly not for Vera. So maybe Vera is our outlier. I don't know. I think that the being erased is really, or being misinterpreted, is just par for the course. I think until a certain point in history, it was almost impossible for a woman's story to come down to us in anything resembling an accurate way, for all kinds of reasons. And you know, part of this is that women are very difficult Women's lives are much more difficult to unearth. I mean, Vera was, you know, just, you really had to kind of take the carpet and then turn it over and look at the other side. Women didn't necessarily take themselves seriously enough to have kept archives. In Vera's case, she's writing letters under her husband's name. I mean, she's truly disguised. And I think, but your other point is interesting. I think everyone here, Vera was accused of being witch-like by several people. There's always a, people who didn't like her, I should add, including the publisher who wanted to publish Lolita, but didn't. So there was obviously there were obviously sour grapes there. But I think there was very often a conflation of women's power with witchcraft in some way, in some very elemental way. I mean Cleopatra is constantly being called an enchantress, a seductress, a magician of some kind. And part of that is the fact that she is Eastern, that she you know, Egypt is considered at that point a, a, a land of great mystery and magic. And especially to the Romans there's something suspect about a Greek speaking woman. But I just think there is always that sense of it that a woman who exercises some kind of power must be exercising something which is unearthly in some way. Yeah, I think these themes, uh, these sort of feminist themes have parallels in colonialist and, and related vectors. I mean, the Western sort of power system will also call my um, relatives from India irrational and uh, there, seductive. There's a great history of witchcraft in India, isn't there? Oh, I think that um, that's what it's all about, actually. (laughs) If you spend any time on magic, if you spend any time on magic, like the present popular conception of magic, the bed of nails, the rope trick, walking across coals, those are tricks that were invented and made famous in the 16th and 17th century in India. At a time, I think, in Europe that magic was so forbidden for, I suppose, doctrinaire religious reasons, that there really just is no magic until maybe 1910 in the West. Every trick that matters, it's Houdini in New York doing tricks that the yogis and fakirs were doing in India for 300 years before that. There is a very interesting, but by magic, I just mean, you know, this sort of illusion stuff. I don't mean witchcraft and whatnot, but, you know, you wouldn't show up and perform a magic trick in the court of the Holy Roman Empire, because if you did, you must be satanic. Which is exactly, I think, what happens. I mean, that sort of, you know, the sexual satanic thing 
was very braided together in a way that we can't completely see still in, in 17th century Massachusetts. I mean, some of those testimonies against, for example, Bridget Bishop was one of the women who will hang for witchcraft, clearly are sexual fantasies about her. She comes and lies in, on top of me in bed, several men will testify. And she was clearly not an unattractive woman, and they all seem to remember precisely what she'd been wearing the previous week in Meeting House. So they're clearly looking at her, right? They're not looking away. So there's clearly something, and that, again, it's very difficult to parse the evidence here. But they do speak, all of them, to these these nocturnal visits she makes to them. You know, obviously, there's the incubus-succubus idea, but these nocturnal visits she makes to them, they all speak about precisely what, you know, in, in that coat that we all know that she was wearing last week at meeting. I mean, they've paid exquisite attention to how she looks and they're bothered by this. So, you know, there's clearly a, you know, some blending of the two. And this, and she has this power over me. It's, you know, obviously the, the headline here. I'm so curious what you're working on now. Is something coming soon from you? I am working on a book about the founding father who was least familiar to us, which is to say Samuel Adams. Because of any number of reasons, but partly because he is the one to whom all the other founding fathers look and whom they salute as the chief instigator of the revolution, but whom we seem to be so completely unacquainted with. Yeah, I don't think I could quote a line from him apart from the one in my land. I don't know if that was his line or a bit of philosophy or political theory. The letters are extremely, I mean, the, the idea of America, the ideas of liberty are extremely, they're like anthems to what we all believe. He's not Ben Franklin, but he's really close. I mean, in terms of quotability. And he's really the person who's out in the forefront in terms of, I mean, for the 15 years before the revolution, he is the man of the hour. So it's pretty inspiring material. Did he really make a lot of beer or is that just some company? (laughs) You know, I asked the founder of Sam Adams Beer why he used Samuel Adams. And he said, basically, he had this fifth grade history teacher who was really obsessed with Sam Adams. His father was a maltster and Adams himself was an exceedingly poor businessman. So no, he didn't really make beer. It turns out there's a lot of people from the era that made some beer. I mean, Martin Luther's wife apparently was one of the best brewers in Germany. When you think that you didn't drink water, but you drank beer all day, there, you know, there must have been a tremendous number of people making beer. Well, I'm really looking forward to that. I, uh, when can we expect it? Have you gotten yourself to full manuscript? No, but I promise to let you know when I have. If I change this series to be about um, spectacular male leaders, I, I might let you know, but... I think the universe of authors on that topic might be larger. I'm I'm so appreciative that you spend time talking to me about these incredible women. Thank you for the great conversation. Hey, listeners. Thanks for subscribing. Or thanks for just tuning in. A special request from me on this podcast that you are growing to love. Write a review, please. A five-star review spreads the word and people will follow. Cheers, thank you, and stay tuned for the next 30 episodes. I'm so excited we've just passed a big milestone. It didn't take long, and all of a sudden we're up at 40 episodes of people telling us how to spread great ideas.